we wish you welcome. Also, our listeners, we wish you welcome. I'm going to read 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 16. May the Lord of peace himself give you his peace, no matter what happens. No matter what's going to happen today. May the Lord of peace, Jesus himself, give you his peace. He be with you. Be with you all. Amen. Going to the, back to the chapter of Matthew, chapter 21. And we're going to start at the 12th verse, talking about this second cleansing of the temple. In the verses 12 through 17. And they let us know, these verses, that the excited crowd that was hailing the Lord and welcoming him into Jerusalem, they had dispersed, they had left, and there were only strangers around the Lord now. And looking at the Greek word they're using, going to the next incident, the two episodes, they're separated with the word Kai, which means end. So adding to it, or then, following, verse 12 starts, and, or then, Jesus went into the temple of God. And this seemed to have happened on the following morning, on the Monday, the day after the triumphant entry in Jerusalem on the Sunday. And the Lord cleansed the temple twice. John recorded the first cleansing in John 2, the verses 13 through 16. That happened at the beginning of the Lord's ministry. And the second cleansing, Stanley M. Horton in the Complete Biblical Library describes, was a picture of judgment of unrepentant Judaism. Business transactions carried out in the temple courts were related to the sacrificial offerings and the temple tax. At Passover, each Jew had to pay a half-shekel temple tax. And as recorded in Exodus 30, verse 30, verse 13, all adult Israelite males over 20 years of age and registered on the census list had to pay a half-shekel temple tax each year. We find in 2 Samuel 24, verses 4, 4 through 9, that records, those verses record such a census. And the collection of this temple tax would start in areas outside of Jerusalem on the 15th of Adar, this March, and would end 10 days later in Jerusalem, right before Passover. And the many pilgrims who exchanged 
their foreign currency from all over, as recorded in John 12, verse 20. They came from Greece, and as we read in Acts 2, verse 5, and the verses following, they came out of every nation under heaven. And these pilgrims, they were most useful because, as a rule, they bought their offerings as animals, wine, oil, salt, and so on, from the local merchants. And the poor, though, who couldn't afford to sacrifice a large animal, they could sacrifice a pair of doves for their purification. As we read in Leviticus 12, verse 8, if they are not able to bring a lamb, Then they shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for the burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for them, and they shall be clean, the people. And the same is recorded in Luke 2, verse 24. So with all this, a lot of hustle and bustle was going on. Let's read Matthew 21, the verses 12 and 13. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. See that the Lord referred to the temple as his father's house, and the godlessness that was going on there was alarming. Horton writes, it was not so much that money changed, that money was exchanged, or that doves were sold. Rather, He, that the Lord, was distressed that the priests were using their position to improve their economic status, often at the unfair expense of the people. And they, in fact, were using God in their sinful schemes. There doesn't seem to be a point in comparing this cleansing incident with the one earlier mentioned in John chapter 2, with the earlier Passover. However, there is an obvious similarity between the two cleansings, but the point is that the first cleansing was unproductive in bringing about a permanent restoration or cure. The thing was to force the people to exchange Roman money into temple money at a random price, and on top of that, forced them to buy the animals or doves for their sacrifices, overpriced at the temple. That's what was going on. R.C.H. Lenski, in the interpretation of St. Matthew's Gospel, puts it this way. He says, a grand lucrative monopoly, if one bought his animals here, had his money exchanged here, these would be accepted, and otherwise he might have trouble on that score. That was something. 
In doing this, the temple authorities were robbing the people and making a charade, a sham, out of the whole sacrificial system. The area where the animals were kept and sold was in the great court of the temple, which never was intended to serve as a a farmyard. And it is noteworthy that this time also, as at the first cleansing of the temple, there was no resistance whatsoever of the people. There was something about the manner, about the behavior, about the attitude of the Lord that muzzled the mouths of these money-greedy merchants, and the people went along with it. The Lord rebuked them with, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Verse 13. Jesus quoted what Isaiah wrote, In Isaiah 56, verse 7, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. And Jeremiah 7 verse 11 is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, says the Lord. The problem wasn't so much that the noise and the hubbub drowned out worship as it was that the sacredness of the temple was being ignored by the way they conducted business. And Horton remarks, a den of thieves is not where a robbery takes place, but where the thieves live. That's some observation. And in connection with the prophecies of the way the Lord cleansed the temple, this was not seen as an act of rebellion. The temple guards would have been called if that were the case, but rather it was a sign or a prophetic word that was acted out for all to witness. By cleansing the temple, the Lord pronounced judgment on the priesthood because They had abused their position by making profit from it. The same is in Jeremiah's chapter 7, the verses 11 through 15, where a message of the judgment of the temple followed, and this is in the the New King James Version, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these works, 
says the Lord. And I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you didn't hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. And therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh, I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. Matthew 23, verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Matthew 24, verse 2. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another, that shall not be thrown down. This all came true. One would have hardly thought that the Lord himself thought that his interference would bring about any permanent good at the temple, but it was part of his solemn judgment that he pronounced upon Jerusalem and his generation, the generation of his time here on earth. And Luke records that before going into the temple, the Lord Jesus wept over the city. As we read in Luke 19, the verses 41 through 44, now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment, embankment around you surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will leave in you not one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And Matthew in his gospel records a similar lamenting over Jerusalem. Eldersheim, in his writing The Life of Christ, he adds, he writes, we can picture ourselves the scene around the table of an Eastern money changer, the weighing of the coins, deduction of loss of weight, arguing, disputing, bargaining, and we realize the terrible truthfulness of our Lord's charge that they had made the Father's house a mart and a place of traffic. And Arno C. Gablin in his The Gospel of Matthew writes, 
how great and awful must have been the defilement of God's temple in those days. Money changes were undoubtedly in the foreground, for money played then in the days of the Jewish apostasy as important a role as it does in the apostasy we witness about us. And with the sale, much speculation was connected. Covetousness, as Jewish Talmudical writings prove, was the ruling passion of this blasphemous traffic. And the most awful fact was that the priesthood, especially the high priestly family, earned riches from it. The bazaars and the temple markets were controlled and owned by the sons of Anna, Gabriel writes. Annas was the son of Seth and was appointed by the Roman legate Quirinius as the first high priest of the newly formed Roman province of Judea in 6 AD. And into this setting, the Lord enters. No whip in his hands, because the king does not need it. Several of the tables and chairs have fallen over in the turmoil, coins rolling all over the place, birds screeching and escaping from their cages, and their owners and the officials of the temple all over the place. It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves, of robbers. Verse 13. It was his house and his father's house. Way back as recorded in the Old Testament, his own glory had come down, had appeared and had dwelt there. And Gabriel writes, Isaiah 56 verse 7 records, Mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. But the words for that all people, the Lord does not quote, because that particular temple was not meant to be a house of prayer for all people. The temple in Isaiah 56 verse 7, that is the millennial temple. That future temple will be the house for all people to which the nations of the earth will come during the coming age of worship. To worship the Lord of hosts. The Lord came suddenly to his temple to cleanse it. And this again being a foreshadow of what is to come. As we read in Malachi 3, the verses 1 through 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. 
He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. But still another temple will stand in Jerusalem during the great tribulation, and there will be even greater defilement, greater desecration, greater sacrilege. In that temple will sit that man of sin, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That was Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. And then the Lord showed that he is the healer of the sick. And he accepted the admiration and the praise of the children as the son of David. They hadn't forgotten the triumphant entry of the Lord the day before. And he was filled with righteous fervor and was full of compassion. He turned none of the needy away, but right there, among them all. And right there, among the turned over money tables, he healed them. It's Matthew alone of the four Gospels who records in verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And these healings, together with the cleansing of the temple, encouraged the crowd again to praise him. Verse 15. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. They were indignant. And of course, these religious leaders were upset and annoyed to hear the people call the Lord King, as recorded also earlier in this chapter, in verse 5, where it says, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, remember, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Oh, the religious leaders, they had hard feelings about this. Most likely, they were members of the Sanhedrin, the high council. They were fuming at what had taken place. The Lord not only had allowed himself to be praised as the Messiah, as the son of David, he healed the blind and the lame and the crippled, and they who in the religious leader's opinion were not permitted to enter within the temple precincts. The cripple. 
And Horton quotes a nice incident here in Second Samuel 5, the verses 6 through 8, and very apropos, which tells how David led his troops to Jerusalem to fight against the Jezebites who, who lived there. And they told him, you'll never come in here. Even the blind and lame could keep you out, they insulted him, for they thought they were safe. But David and his troops defeated them and captured the stronghold of Zion, now called the city of David. And when the insulting message from the defenders of the city reached David, he told his troops, go up through the water tunnel into the city and destroy those lame and blind Jezebites. <laughs> How I hate them. That's the origin of the saving. Even the blind and lame could conquer you, as they had boasted. And, and when an insulting message, that's verse 8, when an insulting message from the defenders of the city reached David, he told his troops, go up through the water tunnel into the city and destroy those lame and blind Jezebites. How oh, I hate them. On top of all this, the people referred to the Lord with phrases that the Old Testament addresses God with. So the religious leaders thought of the Lord only as a rabbi, a teacher. Any regular rabbi would have reprimanded his followers if they had used that kind of language honoring him. And they thought the Lord should do so too, as recorded in Luke 19, verse 39. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, teach them. Stark Billebeck, in Commentar Zum Neuen Testament, offers children here probably connotes older children, as suggested by the Greek pais, which means a child, a boy, actually a child under training. Hosanna would have been familiar to such youths. They were taught early on to wave palm branches during the Feast of Tabernacles whenever they heard shouts of Hosanna, we talked about before. Matthew 21, verse 9, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So they did the same as the crowd did with their jubilant shout of the day before with their hosannas to the Lord Jesus. The religious leaders tried to force the Lord into giving in that he had made the children shout hosanna so they could put the blame on him and put the charge, the liability, the burden, the fault on him. In Psalm 8, verse 2, we read an answer here from the New King James Version. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. And Horton adds, If God himself accepted the children's praise, 
then they certainly were entitled to praise God's representative, the Messiah. And Jesus declared openly, the children are right and you are wrong. And using the quotation from from Psalm 8 verse 2, he also applied it to his own ministry. But the priests and scribes showed and spoke how annoyed they were that Jesus was greeted as the son of David. Of course, connecting him with the kingly line of David. Go to verse 16. And said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? The priests and scribes were were helpless with the enthusiasm of the crowd. And, of course, the religious leaders were especially concerned because of the young people they referred to as children in verse 15, because now they were also praising the Lord Jesus. John F. Wolford in Matthew, Thy Kingdom Come, a commentary on the first gospel, writes, These were boys who, like Jesus, had come to the temple for the first time at the age of 12. Remember, that's what the Lord also did. And he adds, Wolford adds, In answer to their question, Jesus replied by quoting from Psalm 8, verse 2, Yea, have ye never read, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. In effect, he was saying, the youth are right and you are wrong. If babes who barely can speak can praise the Lord, how much more these youths, now 12 years of age and older, In claiming Psalm 8, verse 2, Jesus, in effect, was also claiming to be God and thus worthy of praise. And he left the scribes and the Pharisees stunned with no more to say. Let's go to verse 17. And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany and he lodged there. The Greek word excel then here implies that the Lord as usual went out of the city and spent the night there. By leaving Jerusalem he now was outside the area outside the city limits where the scribes and Pharisees could order his arrest after the crowd had left the temple. As it says in verse 17, and he left them and went out of the city. J. Vernon McGee in Through the Bible suggests this indicates his rejection of religious leaders. However, it had been so often that the Lord in the evenings left the city 
and went off to the Mount of Olives. In the daytime, he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olives, as Luke records in Luke 21, verse 37, and spent much time in Bethany where Lazarus lived. Lazarus, the man whom Jesus raised from the dead, and his sisters, Mary and Martha. Mary was the one who poured the perfume on the Lord's feet, And when the Lord came to visit, Mary would be bustling about, fixing dinner, while Martha sat at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach. And it wasn't until the night of his arrest that he spent the night in Jerusalem. And when reading Psalm 20, the verses 6 through 9, I was reading it the other evening. I was reminded of this portion in Matthew. It spoke to my heart, and I pray it will speak to yours. That is Psalm 20, the verses 6 through 9. Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. Save, Lord, let the King hear us when we call. Amen.